Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Stephanie Martin, the Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. The topic for discussion today is magnesium sulfate. We've received a ton of questions and tried to dispel some myths and practice issues regarding the administration of mag sulfate. And I know that there's various levels of expertise and types of providers listening to the podcast. So we want to go over a complete administration and again, some of these questions that we've been receiving when we've been in person and education seminars, when we have received by email, some of them, or just in discussions. So where did this information come from? Many years ago in 2004, Dr. Kathleen Rice Simpson and Dr. Eric Knox um, did research looking at magnesium sulfate errors. And they came up with some, a list of things that they found in this research that caused some of the errors. Some of these errors caused uh, poor outcomes to patients who were receiving the magnesium sulfate. And they made recommendations for practice in this, um, from this research. So a lot of these can also be found not only in their article that was published in uh, MCN, which is um, a nursing journal, but also on the AHRQ website, as well as the Institute for Safe Medicine Practices. The other th- place that you can find these are in some of the A1 textbooks, because uh, many of these are, are related to uh, nursing administration and nursing assessment, but these also follow the ACOG guidelines um, as well. So I'm going to let... Um, Dr. Martin, uh, you start us off with some of the reasons for using magnesium sulfate. Yeah, so in obstetrics, there's really three primary reasons that we're using magnesium sulfate. The first is for uh, preeclampsia with severe features. So we want to prevent seizures in patients with severe features. um, And it's important in this setting to recognize that magnesium, although not used outside the obstetric world for seizure prevention, is the drug of choice for preventing seizures with preeclampsia, period. And there's really incredibly unlikely settings where you're going to use anything else to prevent a seizure. So magnesium has been used, get tested against multiple medications, you know, dilantin, diazepam, other medications, and it is superior to all other uh, anti-epileptic or anti-seizure medications. So there's really no role for using anything else other than preeclampsia, other than magnesium for preeclampsia. It's also important to recognize that magnesium does not lower blood pressure. It is not an anti-hypertensive. Now it's true. We've all seen it. You give a patient a bolus of, of magnesium and you might notice that their blood pressure is slightly lower than it was before, but that is really not clinically relevant and you're not going to be using it for an anti-hypertensive at all. The second reason that we use uh, magnesium is for neuroprotection. Now neuroprotection is intended not for mom, but for baby. So There's evidence that suggests that magnesium exposure for premature babies, less than 32 weeks, um, when they're born prematurely, 
that magnesium decreases the risk of cerebral palsy, which is a major contributor to complications from prematurity. So any patient who you think is at risk for delivering less than 32 weeks, and this is acutely, not chronically, you're not doing it for somebody who has a history of a preterm birth, but someone who you're treating for preterm labor or has another reason that you might think they're at risk for delivering prematurely, such as preeclampsia, then you're going to expose them to magnesium ideally. Now, every unit should have their own protocol for what that looks like. The dosing is different, but it is important to recognize. Now, Magnesium historically has been used for preterm labor treatment or, you know, especially for patients who were very premature. However, more recent guidelines suggest that magnesium is really not supposed to be your first line medication for treatment of, of preterm labor. We recommend other medications like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories such as indomethacin or calcium channel blockers or even beta agonists in the short term. So magnesium really is primarily going to be used for preeclampsia or for eclampsia prevention and for neuroprotection of fetuses um, at risk of being born less than 32 weeks of gestation. It's very important that every unit have standardized orders and a unit protocol that everyone has access to and understands what is in that protocol and that it is followed. This is not something that is individualized therapy for the most part. This is, should be a very standardized approach to the use of magnesium because of its incredibly high risk nature. One of the, the things that we get asked about a lot, and I see a lot of commentary on it um, on social media, is do you require two IV lines on a patient who has mag sulfate for preeclampsia with severe features and maybe you're inducing her labor at that time? And the answer to that is no. You do not require two IV lines. And in fact, if you have two IV lines in a patient with uh, preeclampsia with severe features uh, and or her pressures are running really high, she's at risk for pulmonary edema. So you don't want to have two maintenance lines and then these piggybacked into those running in two separate um, IVs. And um, you you can use the same IV. They're both, they're compatible medications. So um the important part is if you are running pitocin and magnesium sulfate at the same time, then the pitocin would plug in or connect into the port that is closest to the IV insertion site. And that's the critical component because if you, you don't want to ever give an, a bolus or have a, a tube full of pitocin and you bolus through that um, main line hub and then have more of that pitocin running in and causing uterine tachycystole or any, um, you know, adding to the contraction pattern. And the amount of magnesium sulfate that would run in if it is in a higher port uh, would not make a clinically significant um, possible poor outcome to the, to the uterus or have any kind of a uterine effect or fetal effect. So, clear again, you don't need two IVs if you're just running with Pitocin. You can plug the Pitocin into the closest port to the IV insertion. Now, many of you probably use uh, more of a Y port at the insertion side of the IV, and you can connect it at the same um, level, and that's that's perfect. That's great. Um, but if you don't have that Y port uh, to connect um, at the same level, then the 
Pitocin first, mag second. And the only time that you would need to have two IVs in in a patient outside of hemorrhage or something like that would be if you're running insulin. And then insulin is not compatible with the other two medications. And you also don't want to run it with other medications. So running the insulin would require you to have a second IV uh, for that patient. The um, next thing for administration is labeling the line. Um, these, you know, magsulfate is listed as a high alert medication, and you want to label your bag and then label your line. And I know that each unit has th their protocol on where at that um, site that you label it. So making sure that you follow your hospital standard. But labeling the bag and labeling the line uh, to so, so for confusion, you know, prevent any kind of confusion of bolusing and, and things of that nature. And then also a two RN check. And the two RN check is required at a new bag when you hang a new bag or when you're initiating. So that would be a new bag, obviously. But also if you change doses. So let's say after the bolus dose and you're starting your maintenance dose, then that would require a two RN check. And then make sure you document however, again, your procedure is at your hospital on how that's documented. Um, all IV mixtures should be prepared by a pharmacy or uh, pre-prepared before coming to the unit. One of the uh, major risk factors and the, the complications that uh, the research has shown is that mistakes can be made if mixing it on the unit. And again, I've been practicing long enough when that's what we used to do, but I don't really know of any hospitals that are doing that now. But uh, one thing that I think that, uh, again, that we hear in practice is that some hospitals do not have separate bags for bolusing and then maintenance dose. Um, it is recommended that you have a separate bolus bag. So whether that is the four, um, you know, gram or the six gram bolus that you're giving, that that's a separate bag. And then you have a separate bag of maintenance. And it is recommended that the, the maintenance be a 20 gram, 20 grams in 500 milliliter bag. That kind of sets it apart to where it doesn't look like your maintenance fluids because it's not a liter. And then if you had any errors in your pump or in your administration or somebody accidentally bolused, you'd have less mag running in to the patient if it's only a 20 gram mixture in 500 milliliters. So that's some differences in some hospitals. So I would check that out in your practice. Also, when you remove or discontinue your mag sulfate, like let's say you're turning it off, it's been 24 hours postpartum, or um, you're stopping it for some reason, um, make sure that you unplug that line from the um, mainline fluid so that you don't want it to somebody to accidentally turn that back on and, and bolus it, for instance. So remove the line from the IV port. Um, INO, INO is always a fun topic for um, everyone, but a lot of people will say, don't you require a Foley catheter to go in for all your patients on MAG? And the answer to that is, um, depends. <laughs> if it's being used for preeclampsia, 
then it's recommended that we do hourly INO and get that hourly urine output because mag sulfate is excreted by the kidneys. And patients who have preeclampsia with severe features are also at risk of oliguria. So add that on top of, you know, you've got a patient who has severe preeclampsia, she's on mag sulfate, she's at risk for oliguria. If you don't recognize that she is oliguric and the magnesium is excreted by the kidneys, her risk for magnesium toxicity goes way up. So making sure that she's having adequate urine output to clear the magnesium sulfate is, is very important. So Foley catheter would be recommended. And then hourly and shift totals on top of that. But if she is you having the mag sulfate and, uh, for preterm labor or neuroprotection, then you can do INO, but possibly not do a Foley. And, and I always have my, my preterm labor patients void on a bedpan um, because of the risk for a UTI uh, with a Foley catheter in place. So I, and there's really no need to, they are not at risk for oliguria, so there's no need to put that in. But doing totals of, of um, urine output is very important. The other huge risk, and we see this when we are out in hospitals, and one of the, one of the things that we assess for is, tell me about your magnesium sulfate protocol. And one of the parts of the protocol is that these patients need to be on bed rest. And that's not always happening in some of these patients. And this is a, magnesium sulfate is a neuromuscular blocking agent. So this patient is at really high risk of falling. And in fact, when you start to question providers, you know, have you had falls on mag? And they're like, well, as a matter of fact, we have. And, but they're still allowing their patients to ambulate on a neuromuscular blocking agent, and they're still doing their risk assessments for falls. To me, that doesn't even make sense. And if they're pregnant, if they fall, they're at risk for abruption. So injury, abruption, uh, it's, it's a, to me, it's a, it's something that a practice that has kind of evolved over time. And I, I realize it's it's uncomfortable for a patient to be in bed, on bed rest and everything, but but this is a, a, a kind of a interesting evolution of practice not based on evidence. Yeah, I want to echo that. And up to all the nurses listening, you may be getting pushback from the doctors, maybe saying, no, she's fine. She can get up to the bathroom. And that's why it's so important to have those unit protocols that are not bypassed in this situation. I think this was a much bigger issue back in the days when patients were on mag for very prolonged periods of time. That's for another discussion. (laughs) But now we're really, these patients are on magnesium for relatively short periods of time. 24, 48 hours is more typical. So having her limit her activity for that short duration of time is not as significant a deal as it was in the old days when they were being on MAG for many days and had many other potential complications from being on the MAG. Yeah, it just, again, it just always baffles me when you see that fall risk uh, being done. And I I don't think nurses would consider getting a patient up right after they administered some morphine, for instance. Um, So it is, again, neuromuscular blocking, 
And these patients are really high risk for falls. Another component of nursing care is continuous fetal and uterine monitoring when they're on the magnesium sulfate. And that can be very difficult, I I realize, especially with a a really preterm patient or a patient um, that you're having difficulty monitoring. And there's a a fine, you know, line and, and a little bit of discussion about, well, she's, you know, 24 weeks or 26 weeks and she has polyhydramnios and the baby is moving everywhere and she really needs some rest. I get it. That is tough. That is a tough scenario. Um, So we do the best we can to make sure that we are getting that continuous monitoring because that is recommended while the patients are on magnesium sulfate. And then other assessment components, uh, the RN, um, it's recommended that the RN stay at the bedside during the bolus so that the RN can assess the reaction to the initial loading dose and then frequently thereafter. So these patients in that first hour are one-on-one because you are starting at this high alert medication, doing these frequent assessments of vital signs uh, during that bolus and making sure that the patient is, uh, is you know, responding well. DTRs after when, uh, after that remain every hour. So you want to do assess your DTRs before you started and then every hour after that. And that is going to align with your magnesium sulfate level um, for your DTR. So making sure that everybody does their DTRs consistently too, like um, one plus means this, two plus means this, three plus, four plus is clonus. Um, so just making sure you do that every hour and that's going to correspond with your magnesium sulfate level. Yeah. And just to follow up on the DTRs issue. So we're going to get into magnesium toxicity in a minute, but you know, the degree of, you know, whether you have clonus or one plus does not predict seizures. So really what you are trying to assess is, is there any reason for me to think this patient is mag toxic before she develops respiratory compromise. So when your DTRs disappear, that's your first sign that this patient may be getting mag toxic, which we'll talk about just in, in a minute. But understanding what those pa- that patient's baseline DTRs are. Some patients are very difficult to elicit DTRs. And knowing that before you start the mag is super important because then you may be not able to assess well or confusing what's happening with the assessment. So that baseline and continuous assessment of DTRs to tell you, are they there? Are they not there? What's happening with them so that you can understand if mag toxicity is a potential complication. That's true. And then, you know, vital signs are vital. So vital signs every hour um, is essential. And, And that would include a pulse oximetry value as well. You know, again, magnesium sulfate can depress respiration. So making sure that you include your respiratory rate, your heart rate, your blood pressure, as well as a pulse oximetry value every hour is is essential. And then the last hourly assessment would be your level of consciousness. And then every two hours, breath sounds. So making sure you're listening to all lung fields, posteriorly, anteriorly, but essentially all throughout all lung fields every two hours, and especially important in those patients who have 
preeclampsia because they are at risk for both types of pulmonary edema, cardiogenic fluid volume overload, as well as non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema related to endothelial damage. Now, when you are inducing a patient on magnesium sulfate, study out of LSU many years ago came out that you may need higher doses of Pitocin when you are running both magnesium sulfate and Pitocin at the same time for induction of labor. So making sure that you understand that, um, I know that uh, in in teaching uh, on induction of labor, especially in a high-risk patient like this, we have this in our mindset that we can't run Pitocin past 20 uh, milliunits per minute. And this is the exact patient that you probably will need to. And you're seeing that clinically, um, but it's not that the Pitocin is not working. It's just you've got a a smooth muscle relaxer that is is going at the same time. So you're going to need to add higher levels of Pitocin, and that's been shown through research. Then one last thing as far as administration. This has also come up in discussion a lot, and that is we discontinue, you know, uh, some units will say we discontinue our mag when we're going to the OR for a C-section. And that is not recommended. So in your preeclamptic patient, that mag sulfate should continue. Obviously, if you're giving mag sulfate for preterm labor and or neuroprotection and the you all of a sudden needed to do a C-section, then you would turn off the mag. That That makes sense. But in your preeclamptic patients, the mag sulfate stays on, and there's been studies that show it does not increase your postpartum hemorrhage numbers. So leave that seizure prophylaxis on during the C-section. Yeah, I totally agree. And then the last thing to talk about is magnesium toxicity. Now, if any of you have ever experienced this, you know how intimidating and scary this can be. Um, But really what you're looking for in terms of mag toxicity is any evidence of respiratory depression. So the first thing that will happen as your levels begin to increase in the blood is that you will lose your deep tendon reflexes. So that's going to happen before you get the more progressive paralysis, smooth muscle paralysis, and then the patient will start to develop respiratory depression and then ultimately cardiac arrest and that's not a situation that you want to be in. So loss of deep tendon reflexes is early signs of magnesium toxicity. Now the therapeutic range for magnesium is somewhere around very close to five to nine milligrams per deciliter. That's really your target. We don't generally check a whole bunch of levels to make sure that you're in that range. The recommendation is that for preeclampsia, you give a bolus of four to six grams. Most of us are giving six grams because that's more likely to get you to a therapeutic range in a timely manner. And then you run it on roughly two grams per hour. Now, there are some situations where you will need to decrease that, uh, the magnesium infusions because magnesium is excreted renally. And if you have any renal insufficiency, magnesium levels are going to climb in the serum. She's at significant risk for toxicity. So you want to uh, be aware of that and accommodate that. That's what we're talking about with preeclampsia with severe features. So to be more specific, let's say you have a patient whose creatinine is 1.1 or higher. That's where you're going to be, you know, you're still going to give them the bolus because you need to get them therapeutic. 
but you're going to lower your infusion to maybe one gram per hour. You know, if this patient has a really high creatinine, like over two and a half, then you might just bolus them and follow cerium, serial levels of magnesium to determine how they're clearing it. You can't use a creatinine to say how quickly the levels are going to drop. This is the role of magnesium levels. So really the only time you need to do mag levels on a patient, or if you think she might be mag toxic, she's lost her DTRs, she's having respiratory issues, or if she's got renal insufficiency and you don't know what to do with her infusion, you need to know what's happening with her levels. But you can under, you can feel pretty confident. If the patient has deep tendon reflexes, she's not mag toxic. Her magnesium level is not above nine. So if you're ever wondering, you're at the bedside, the patient's you know, they get a little groggy. They get a little out of it. They don't feel great on mag. No one ever says that was amazing. No. So it can be confusing sometimes to understand what's happening with the patient. First thing you do is in addition to your whole set of vital signs is check her deep tendon reflexes. And that's going to point you in a direction. Now, Suzanne, what did you think about that? Yeah, I want to just uh, point out too, sometimes it's really difficult to elicit DTRs in the lower extremities if you have an epidural in. So make sure then you move to the upper extremities to check our reflexes. Um, and that's important. But we hear, we're hearing a lot of people out there that are, are doing like every four hours or every six hour routine mag checks. And I, I can't imagine if I was the patient too, that I was having that if I was if I didn't exhibit any signs of mag toxicity, um, it may not be correlating, you know, real well with with your clinical exam. So I I would I would definitely push back. Yeah, and then the other point I want to make here is that patients with preeclampsia with severe features not only are they at risk for renal insufficiency, which it can impact your mag um, levels or clearance, they're also at risk for pulmonary edema. Okay, and there are some there's still, I call it obstetric urban legend that magnesium causes pulmonary edema. And that's really not the case. I think the concern is how much fluid is the patient getting? What's her I's and O's in order to administer the magnesium? But if your patient develops pulmonary edema and she has preeclampsia with severe features, you're going to continue your magnesium unless she is mag toxic. So continue the magnesium, even if she develops pulmonary edema, you're going to address the pulmonary edema along with everything else, but don't stop the magnesium just because of that. Now, if the patient is mag toxic, let's say that she has lost her reflexes, she's not feeling well, maybe you notice that her you know, respiratory rate is decreasing, several things you're going to do in that situation. Number one is turn off the magnesium. Stop the mag right away. And then you're going to be giving them an antidote. And the antidote to magnesium sulfate is calcium gluconate. It reverses the action of magnesium. You give an initial dose of one gram IV over two to five minutes. And I want to stress that you may need to repeat this. One gram, you might notice an improvement right away, but you may need to repeat it. That's okay. Um, your patient's response will dictate what needs to happen next. And then there is some evidence that giving a dose of Lasix can increase the clearance of the magnesium, get it out of their system quicker so that they you reverse the, the symptoms of the toxicity. But, you know, 
that's a that's a delicate dance to do in a patient with preeclampsia who might already be intravascularly depleted. I mean, obviously this patient's critically ill, so then the question becomes, okay, are we, uh, you know, what would we rather deal with? Worsening pulmonary edema or worsening, um, you know, magnesium toxicity or worsening intravascular volume status? You're kind of between a rock and a hard place and, and you certainly don't want them going into cardiac arrest. So thanks for listening. We hope this has been helpful for you guys to understand what we see as some of the hot topics with magnesium sulfate. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Feel free to email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts or any questions. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.